0: Our sermon text is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. These are the words of God. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Our gracious Heavenly Father, now by the Spirit, please open these great words uttered by your Son, which are just as applicable to us today and to the end of the world as in the day that he gave them. Open them to us, O Lord God, make us strong, make us glad, all in your name and to your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The issue of ultimate authority is always the foundational issue for any person, for any institution, marriage, family, business, government, and any society. This is the point that Jesus is making in our text. Now, this is the conclusion and climax to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. He describes two houses one that stands in the storm because it's built on a foundation of the rock, and the other house that falls because it is built on a foundation of sand. Verses 25 and 26. And what is the foundation of the rock? It is Christ and his words. Verse 24. One builds on that foundation of rock by hearing Christ's words and doing them. Verse 24. And the foundation of sand? it is anything other than Christ and his word. Verse 26. Of all the apparently infinite varieties of ultimate authorities that people can build their lives on, even if it is the ever popular, ultimately authority of our own feelings, our own opinions, our own felt needs, it is all sand, white sand, bay sand, gray sand, black sand fine sand, coarse sand, fluffy sand, packed sand, it is all just sand. And any life, any institution, any society built on it is going to sag, is going to crack, and is going to ultimately collapse. It is just a matter of time. The only ultimate authority on which one can build and have it stand in terms of providing the fulfillment and blessing we all instinctively long for and stand up to the storms of life and stand up to final judgment on the last day is Christ and His Word. The question then becomes, since Christ refers to building on His words by hearing and doing them, where was Christ getting His words? And specifically, what is the relationship between Christ's words And the scriptures, which is the time that he was speaking, was the Old Testament scriptures. Well, the answer we see in the Bible, in short, is that Christ's words and scripture are really one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin. Well, to understand this, the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is the incarnation of of God the Son, who is the eternal living Word of God, the perfect expression of God and of His character, through whom the triune God spoke the world into existence. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, literally face to face with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power." When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Jesus in his ministry identifies himself as the covenant God who appeared to Abraham and the other saints in the Old Testament. John 8:56. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am being the translation of the name of God, the Hebrew name of God. That's what it means. I am. I am the eternal one. I am the self-existent one. I am the never-changing one. I am the omnipotent one. I am the promise-making, promise-keeping, never-failing, never-changing God. I am. That's what Jesus was saying. Now, Paul confirms that it was indeed Christ who was with Israel in the pillar of fire, the glory cloud, which is really not fire at all. It's millions of angels that are radiating the glory of God that is being manifested by His presence. And so it looks like a whirlwind or a pillar of fire. He was the one who stood before Moses and told him to strike the rock with that same staff through which all the plagues of Egypt have come, that staff of curse, that staff of death. Bring that staff right down through the glory cloud as Christ stood on that rock. It's a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. And then the water came out. He was the one who provided the manna from heaven on a daily basis. The rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Peter tells us that it was the spirit of Christ that moved the Old Testament prophets to speak and write the word of God as they predicted ahead the the sufferings and the glories of Christ. In other words, it was the spirit of Christ who inspired them to speak and write the words of the Old Testament Scriptures. So when Jesus, the Word, comes in the flesh, in human form, what is his relationship to the Scriptures? Now see, the way we tend to think, we just assume this without really thinking much about it, if Jesus is the incarnate Word, and furthermore, if he is the perfect man, he's sinless... Wouldn't Scripture just be kind of irrelevant to him? I mean, in the sense that he just wouldn't need it. It wouldn't be necessary for him the way it is for us. But when we look at the life of Jesus, we say it's exactly the opposite because he was preeminently a man of the Scriptures. As a boy, at age 12, he astounds the finest teachers of his day at the temple. Because he already knows and understands the Scriptures better than they do. Luke 2 46 and 47. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, what we see is not only him constantly teaching the Scriptures, but at every crisis point, at every crisis point, he turns to Scripture, he clings to Scripture. When he's tempted by the devil in the desert after 40 days without food, he quotes scripture in response to every single temptation. Even when the devil starts quoting scripture, and of course he's twisting it and misapplying it and perverting it, Jesus continues to quote scripture in order to correct the misapplication and interpretation of scripture that the devil is offering. In every case... Jesus quotes scripture as being the ultimate and final authority. And he quotes it as being a man under the authority of scripture, even when he is the living word. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, after a Roman scourging, And many men died during Roman scourgings. Many never made it to the cross. They died during the scourging. Jesus has been scourged. He is hanging on the cross. What flows out of him? Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote of Psalm 22, verse 1. He doesn't have to think about it. It is the cry of his heart. And the thing is, when you turn back... Psalm 22 and you look at it, you realize the entire Psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer that refers to hands and feet being pierced. It's a prayer that refers to clothes being divided and Captors casting lots for his clothes. All of those things happened while Jesus was on the cross. They were all fulfilled there. And we start to realize, if you're paying attention, that Psalm 22 is the prayer of Jesus to the Father when he was hanging on the cross. It was given back in time through the lips of David, and now it's taken up by Christ who wrote them in the first place. And in line 21, right in the middle, you have the sweetest words of all time. You have heard me. You have heard me. That's the victory. That's the resurrection. And what is the result of that victory, that resurrection? I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, the congregation, I will praise you. Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Even after his resurrection, we see Jesus continuing the same way. In Luke 24, he appears to two disciples walking along the road, confused and distraught. Jesus whom they hoped was the Christ has been crucified, and now they've been perplexed by the claim of some of their uh, of the women of their group who have claimed angels appeared to them, saying that Jesus was written, risen. So here comes Jesus, and he approaches them on the road. Now we would think that just what they need is for Jesus to show himself as the resurrected Christ and take away all of their sorrows. But that is not what he does. In fact, he does the opposite. He prevents them from recognizing them. What does he do instead? He preaches the scriptures to them. What's the effect? It causes their hearts to burn. Their hearts are aflame. Their hearts are on fire fire because he's preaching the scriptures to them so where does he direct these disciples for understanding for comfort for strength even after the resurrection to the scriptures and what is he saying to them he will go he will break bread to them and in the breaking of bread then he will reveal himself and then he'll disappear And then they will say how our hearts burned within us as he opened the scriptures to us along the road. What is Jesus saying? He is saying through his behavior, through his actions in summary form, this is how I am going to be with you for the rest of history by the Holy Spirit. Gathered around the table, gathered around the opening of the word, gather around the breaking of bread in the supper where two or three are gathered together I will be there in their midst shortly thereafter Jesus will appear to all the disciples together what does he do after revealing himself to them it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures luke 24:45 he explains to them they're going to be his witnesses beginning in jerusalem and all judea to samaria and to all nations of the world. What are they going to need to fulfill that special commission? They're going to need to understand the scriptures. And so we see the apostles following Jesus' example. Take Paul, for example. What was his practice when he came to a new city on his missionary journeys? Acts 17, 2 and 3 tells us it was his custom to go to the local synagogue and to reason with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and that Jesus is the Christ. This was the essence of apostolic ministry in fulfillment of the great commission. So to sum up, Jesus, the incarnate word, was preeminently a man of the scriptures and in submission. To the scriptures. His ministry was focused on bringing about reformation and revival among God's people because where does it always start? It starts with God's people. Peter tells us. Judgment begins with the household of God. And the Bible also tells us that reformation and revival begins with the household of God. In Ezekiel, we see the living water flowing out across the world and everything it touches becomes alive. Where's it coming from? From underneath the altar, from the worship of God's people to the Lord. And judgment begins in the household of God. What is that saying? It's saying that the heavenly father is the perfect father. If you have a town and there's a problem with youth in the town, who is the good mayor and ruler of the town? The one who starts with everybody else's kids or the one who starts with his own kids? The one who starts with his own kids. God always starts with his own children. And so that is what Jesus is doing. He is focused in his ministry on bringing about reformation and revival because that's the way the leaven starts and begins to spread to the world. And he, in his ministry of of preaching the scriptures, his goal was to restore what they actually meant. What they actually meant and to show how His life, death, resurrection, and ascension would fulfill them and bring about the salvation they taught. And that's really what the New Testament is. It is not a different message from the old. It is a detailed explanation of what the Scriptures had been saying all along and how Jesus in His person and work fulfilled them all. Now let's ask the question, if Jesus represented a return to Scripture, a reformation and revival centered on Scripture, what were they turning, returning from? What was he returning the people from to take them to the Scriptures? Well, you see, the problem was is that an alternative authority had been placed on par with, with Scripture, And that alternative authority at the time was called the tradition of the elders. And the effect was not to explain or apply Scripture in truth, but to subordinate and supplant Scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 15. The scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now they are not talking about sanitary washing. They're talking about ritual washing to cleanse themselves from ritual uncleanness associated with incidental contact with Gentiles, something about which the law says nothing, by the way. But Jesus goes over that inconsistency because he wants to talk about a greater inconsistency between the tradition of the elders and what the scriptures actually said. And so in verse 3 he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And in verses 4 through 6 he gives the example of their practice of allowing and encouraging people to pledge all of their possessions to the temple upon their death, which would then authorize them to deny support to their elderly parents because, in theory, they didn't own anything. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Really like to help you in your old age. But you see, everything I have belongs to the temple because I'm so spiritual. That's what was going on. The problem is that's in direct violation of God's command to honor one's father and mother. Here's the point that Jesus was making, and this is the one that we need to get. Whenever you place something on par with Scripture, you're not placing it over Scripture. You're just putting it on the same level as Scripture. The effect will always be to subordinate and supplant Scripture. Whenever you place something on par with scripture the effect will always be to subordinate and supplant scripture and Jesus follows up that point with a second one that is equally profound and important our attitude toward scripture is our attitude toward god our attitude toward scripture is our attitude toward god Turning away from scriptures is turning away from God himself. Verses seven through nine. Jesus said, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me in vain. They worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Anytime God's people distance themselves from the scriptures and what they actually say, even if it is justified with spiritual sounding words, they are distancing themselves from God to the same degree. And they are failing to truly worship God to the same degree. And the Bible has a word for that. Idolatry. It is in fact In effect, worshiping something other than God, making something other than the word of God the supreme authority. Now, Jesus in his ministry, what he's going to do about that situation is beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to take a hammer and chisel and he's going to knock off all the barnacles, all the man-made teachings that were obscuring and perverting scripture. But here's the thing. Jesus knew that when the people heard what the law actually said and what it actually meant and how it actually applied, it was going to sound so different from what they normally heard the traditions of the elder. It was going to sound so different that the people were going to think he was just making up a new law. And so he tells them ahead of the Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to set aside the law, but to fulfill. Therefore, whoever loosens or mitigates or or, or lessens the least of these commandments and so teaches others, he will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches and applies and obeys them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's He's saying, this is going to sound so different. You're going to think I'm coming up with a new law, but I am not. And so the churches, even today, the the vast majority of the evangelical church believes that in the New Testament, Jesus basically came up with a new kind of a peacenik flower child type of a, a groovy, nice law, as opposed to the tough, firm law of the Old Testament. And so when we read things, Jesus says things like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5 5. In truth, he's getting this from the Old Testament. That's an exact quote of Psalm 37 verse 11. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. It was written in his old age, looking back on his life drawing lessons from it for the younger generation. And the setting of the whole psalm is trying to honor the Lord in the midst of powerful and wicked men who are in control and seem to be winning. Can anybody identify with that? Trying to serve the Lord in the midst of powerful and wicked men who are in control and seem to be winning. And David's word is to them, the younger generation, throughout this psalm is this is a war, not a skirmish. The winner is determined in the long term. Do not take your view of this war from the foxhole that you are in, where you're taking more lead than what you're giving. It seems like there's no hope for the righteous. Remember what you saw from the mountaintop of Scripture when you could see the whole battlefield down through history. Remember that this is the Lord's battle. It's not about what we can do. It's about what He can do. And He has already won the crucial victory over Satan, sin, and death. D-Day has already occurred. You're not at Dunkirk. We're not waiting for an evacuation. We're at the battle of the bulge. And it may look bleak, but you hold on and you be faithful. And so the psalm says in verse 7, Do not fret because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. You see, meek in the Bible does not mean weak. It means fully yielded to the Lord. David was meek. David was a warrior who killed Goliath in the name of the Lord. But David was meek because his, he was the man after God's own heart. He was fully yielded to the Lord. The psalm continues, verse 14, "...the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay those who are of upright conduct." This shows you what the Bible means by poor and needy. It may mean someone who is economically poor and needy, but that's not the essence of the meaning. The essence of the meaning is someone who is suffering for righteousness' sake. So in Psalm 34, verse 6, David, who was the rightful king of Israel who was from a prominent family who had over 600 soldiers ready to die for him, calls himself a poor man. Why? Because Saul was seeking to kill him because he was the Lord's anointed. He was being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But the psalm, Psalm 37, says, "...the sword of the wicked shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken." See, what a difference it makes when you study and realize in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament Scriptures and you go back and read not only the verse, but you read the whole context. What a difference it makes. Another place in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Matthew 5.43 Now certainly, surely, this is a new law that Jesus is giving. Certainly, this language does not come from the Old Testament, except for the fact that it does. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, that's flower child philosophy, right? Well, let's read on. Let's go to the next verse, verse 22. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Coals of fire on the head. That kind of sounds more like warfare, doesn't it? But it's spiritual warfare, which involves objectively seeking to bring the one who hates you under the conviction of the Lord. And so Solomon was telling you how you fight this kind of war. Jesus was quoting Solomon. So Solomon and Jesus are not telling us how to peace out. They're telling us how to fight and how to win in the Lord's way. What about the golden rule? Whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them. Matthew 7, verse 12. That is simply a restatement of Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The bottom line is everything in the Sermon on the Mount is simply a restoration of what the Old Testament Scriptures already said and really meant. Jesus was preaching the real law and what it really meant and how to apply it in this sermon. So the scribes and the Pharisees were really in the business of obscuring and supplanting the law. The conflict with the religious leaders, with Jesus to them, was caused by the fact that they had departed from the Scriptures by functionally making their traditions equivalent to Scripture. Now these lessons that we learn from the life and ministry of Jesus we see the exact same lessons as we go forward in church history. It's the same lessons over and over. We see at every point of church history, there is always the temptation to take something and put it on par with Scripture. Not over Scripture, just put it on par with Scripture. Some competing authority, and it always has the effect of subordinating and supplanting Scripture. Let's fast forward from the time of Jesus in the first century all the way up to the 1400s, the century that was leading up to the Protestant Reformation that touched off in 1517. By the 1400s, the Church of Rome, which was the entire Western Church of that day, had effectively made the authority of the church. Now, the church is a good thing, isn't it? And doesn't the church have real authority? Yes, it does. But they had effectively made the authority of the church, particularly the bishop of Rome, known as the pope, on par with scripture. And the primary way they did this was through the doctrine of the pope as the vicar of Christ on earth. And thus the one who, when he spoke ex-cathedra, literally from the chair, in his official capacity, he spoke infallibly and could not be questioned. In other words, what the Pope says, God says. Now contrast the early church, which we're told by Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15, was the pillar and ground of the truth. He says, the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, pillar and ground, those are supporting mechanisms. You cannot be the pillar and ground of something unless you are underneath it, in submission to it. You cannot be the pillar and ground of the truth of God unless you're underneath that truth, underneath the scriptures and in submission to them. And so this doctrine that the pope spoke infallibly and could not be questioned, thus he was on par with scripture, you might call that the divine right of popes, what the pope says, God says. It was mirrored in that time in civil society by the claim of kings that they had the same sort of divine right. What the king says, God says and cannot Be questioned. And so you had this constant competition between popes, and at one point you had two popes, and then for a short time you had three popes, and then you had all the kings claiming the divine right too. So you had this constant competition of divine right. Who had the divine right? Was it this king? Was it that king? Was it this pope? Was it that pope? Who had the right to say what I say, God says? And the Protestant reformers following Jesus and the apostles in the early church, where did they turn? To the scriptures. And they answered the popes and kings of their day, as well as the parliaments and the people with a capital P, the people always being a sock puppet for some dictator. They answered all of those who purported to speak by divine right by saying That no human authority at any level speaks or acts by divine right. Because what we see in the scriptures is that the ultimate authority, the only supreme authority over doctrine, faith, and life in any sphere was the scriptures. What scripture says, God says, because the scripture is the word of God. All human authority in any realm is under the authority of Christ in the Scriptures. And the authority of Christ in the Scriptures over all of life is the only proper foundation for life. Well, after the Reformation, a reaction arose known as the Enlightenment, which placed a new something on par with Scripture, the most insidious thing of all, man himself. Man not only is the bearer of faith but is the object of faith. The belief that autonomous man completely apart from any word from God could with his reason and his senses know objective truth about himself and the world around him and by the same means obtain everything he needed for meaning and morality and purpose and fulfillment and human flourishing. This started, you see, not by kicking God and the scriptures out altogether, but by saying that the scriptures were only given because of the fall of man, that man didn't need the word of God before the fall. He only needed the word of God so he would know the way of salvation through Christ. For everything else, man could unerringly acquire what he needed on his own. So now man had two ultimate authorities. Scripture, when it came to salvation, reason and the senses, and so forth, when it came to everything else. And even among believing Christian scholars, you would find these two dual ultimate authorities. John Witherspoon, who was the, exa- uh, the president of Princeton, In the latter half of the 1700s, he would use Scripture to teach about salvation. But when he taught ethics, he refused to quote or cite Scripture because he believed that reason and observation would lead infallibly and unerringly to true ethics. What did we learn from Jesus And the religious leaders of his day, whenever you place anything on par with Scripture, the effect will always be to subordinate and supplant Scripture. And that is exactly what happened. Over time, thinkers began to judge various biblical doctrines as being unreasonable and to reject them. What doctrines am I talking about? Doctrines like the Trinity. Like hell, like substitutionary atonement, like the incarnation, like the burden of birth, like the resurrection of Christ, those were not reasonable and so they were rejected. And so Harvard, for example, officially rejected Orthodox Trinitarian Christianity in 1801 and other institutions followed suit. And it grew to the point where the very idea of God, the very idea of God revealing himself and speaking in the scriptures was rejected in favor of a pure naturalism. And with the advent of Darwinism in the mid-1800s, naturalism increasingly became a presuppositional starting point. In other words, an article of faith that all scholarship had to bow to. But, you know, at the same time, a strange thing began to happen in fulfillment of Jesus's words that anything that is built on a foundation other than him and his word is built on sand. There began to be a crisis of knowledge because they began to realize, and even Darwin talked about this, that if everything is just matter in motion, then our reason is just matter in motion. And our sense perceptions are just matter in motion. Our beliefs, our sense of right and wrong, our sense of meaning and purpose, even love itself, they're all just matter in motion. And there is no way to know what is real, what is true, what is good. And then if we fast forward to our modern times, philosopher Richard Rorty one of the most uh, influential postmodern ph- uh, philosophers in history he was a professor at Princeton and then the University of Virginia and then at Stanford he wrote an article in which he said the very notion of truth is undarwinian does not fit with naturalism he wrote that the very idea of objective truth, and I'm quoting here, is a remnant of the idea that the world is a divine creation. The work of someone who had something in mind. Who himself spoke some language in which he described his own project. That's exactly what the Bible is. That's exactly what it claims to be, the word of the creator and redeemer God. And when we pick up that word and read it, we see him speaking when there was no one to hear, but father, son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see that to speak, to reveal himself and to relate is of the very nature of God. And then we see God speaking to Adam and Eve before the fall, before sin ever entered the world and telling them all sorts of things that they could not know any other way and speaking to them out of love as part of a personal relationship with them. And so we see God never intended man to live apart from a personal relationship with him and apart from his word. And we see in Genesis 5-1 it referring to the book of the generations of Adam. And the Hebrew word there used for book is very specific. It means a written record. And so we see from the beginning that man was intended not only to hear God's words, but to write them down and preserve them to pass on to subsequent generations. And we see all of this is to restore man for what he was created for in the beginning. So what is our task today, Christians, as we see the ground shaking around us and the tectonic plates of society shifting this way and that? Number one, we need to remember our first sermon in this series. We need to remember who is the Lord of the earthquake who is the Lord of the storm? Who is the Lord shaking the ground so that all the false foundations are revealed to be false foundations? That's Christ himself. Second, we need to remember the centrality of worship. Us coming to him around the table, around the word, honor and confessing him as Lord, confessing our sins, singing his praises, being his people, being conformed to his image. And thirdly, we need to have the same project that Jesus did. We need to be seeking reformation and revival in our own day based on what? The preaching of the word of God, a return to the scriptures, a submission to the scriptures as the supreme authority in every area of life. Not just to religious stuff because the scriptures talk about everything. Because that's what God is interested in. You see, Jesus' salvation, it's not an underground railroad. Jesus is not trying to grab a few of Satan's souls and smuggle us across the border to heaven where he has real power. No, Jesus is coming and claiming everything. Everything. It's not just the case that Jesus wins in eternity. Jesus wins in history. Jesus doesn't just win in heaven. Jesus wins on earth. History is not a stalemate between Christ and the devil, where finally Christ, after trading down and getting a few of Satan's pieces, finally knocks the chessboard in the air and says, I've had enough. No, history is complete victory, complete restoration of all that God intended from the beginning by Jesus Christ. What does Satan win? Satan wins nothing. What does Christ win? Christ wins everything. He wins in history and eternity. On the earth and in heaven, Jesus wins. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.